Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast Well dopey now podcast. It's the time for the Dopey Podcast When you call in And dopey put all your life on blast And you call dopey in podcast. And talk about your past Because your life was furious, hardcore and fast So now is the time for the Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast Now if your life was furious, hardcore and fast You feel like you want to put your life on blast Just call up the show and I talk about your past Cause now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. They are located in Southern California, where it's sunny, in Malibu, Silver Lake, and West Los Angeles. Aloe was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, to create a facility that treats alcoholics and drug addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades of experience treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including the dread SMI. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, including the sound bath meditation, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, fucking equine therapy, surfing. They make sure that if you're kicking drugs, whatever you're detoxing, it is the most comfortable detox possible. Uh, if I was in a bad spot and I was willing to go to southern sunny California, I would totally suggest going to aloe this episode of dopey is also brought to you by our friends at clean cause they just sent me some of their incredibly delicious sparkling yerba mate beverage and i have to say it is incredibly delicious plus it really is a pick-me-up it tastes amazing it has 160 milligrams of organic caffeine which really helps in all of the incredible effort that i put into producing the Great Dopey Podcast. But the best thing about Clean Cause is that 50% of their profits empower individuals recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. Those profits fund sober living scholarships, and to date, they've granted 2,000 scholarships representing a million dollars. And they aren't stopping there. So drink a better caffeine and go to cleancause.com. That is cleancause.com and use the code DOPEY15 for 15% off your next purchase. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our great friends at New Harbor at Hingham, a sober living home for men in Hingham, Massachusetts. New Harbor is led by Dopey Superfan and Scholarship chair, or we should say the head of the Dopey Scholarship Foundation, the Toodles for Chris Scholarship Foundation, Justin, who was actually on Dopey, and his business partner, Eric. The two of them are professionals in long-term recovery who realize their dreams through sobriety, and they are building a supportive community to help other men do the same thing. They support clients and their families through individualized recovery plans, monitoring, and family coaching. Learn more at newharborhingham.com slash dopey. And last but not least, this episode is brought to you by you guys in the Dopey Nation through Patreon. 
Uh, Patreon is this amazing thing that allows me to make more content for you and allows you guys to kick more money at Dopey. We have videos up. We have music up. We have interviews, bonus content, tons of shit on Dopey Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash Dopey Podcast. If you get a lot out of Dopey, kick some bucks into Dopey Podcast Patreon. That would be amazing. Also, we have tons of amazing gear at dopeypodcast.com. SRO Prince makes all our shit. They are some junkies in Cincinnati, and they are pumping out amazing dopey gear. Check it out at dopeypodcast.com. I also have a shitload of hats, uh, multicolored dopey hats, and black and white dopey hats, oive snapbacks, and stickers. Hit me up, Venmo me, and I will send those out to you as well. Enough with the fucking ads. Here is the show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I hope you guys are well. I am safe and warm and dry in my attic on a crazy rainy day. And it is, uh, besides the rain, it's very beautiful out. Spring is springing out in New York and there's just like, we have flowering trees in the backyard and the grass is coming in very green and it is like, it's very exciting. I, one of my favorite things about New York is uh, the five seasons because just when you're sick of one thing, something else is right around the corner, and I think that is just amazing. I hope spring is happening for you guys in a nice way. Love the Dopey Nation. Love that you guys are involved and in tune with the show and each other. And I don't know if you guys know about this, but last year we set up a scholarship, a rehab scholarship kind of movement called the Toodles for Chris scholarship program. I think that's loosely what it's called. And we got to place nine addicts in treatment for free. And we still have scholarships that we are available to give away. So if you are fucked and you want to go to treatment and you want one of these Toodles for Chris dopey scholarships, write me an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com and we'll see if we can place you. Justin Cambria, who's a The dude in the Sober Living ad that we read in the ads, if you listen to the ads, he is placing people into programs. And if you need a program, please drop us a line. And if you don't need a program and you have a good dopey story, you guys know what a good dopey story is. If you have a good dopey story, email it to us at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. We need good stories. And while you're doing shit, leave a five-star review on iTunes. Make it nice. Make it friendly. Make it complimentary. Don't put me down in the five-star review, unless you really need to. But just make it five stars, even if you want to be a dick and put me down. Just make it five stars. And um, lots of stuff is happening. I am in an amazing frame of mind. Things are going well. Uh, And this one thing that I'm doing that's really got me feeling good is I'm reading a book, and it's finally not a recovery book. It is a... uh, a memoir of sorts. It's uh, the Beastie Boys memoir, and it's so fucking good. I cannot recommend it enough. It is uh, basically, it's my favorite story, which is the story of a dream that comes true. And it's like 
these guys met when they were like 15 and they started a hardcore band and they got inspired by hip hop and they became the Beastie Boys. And uh, the book has the most amazing pictures and Beastie Boys ephemera. And I'm also listening to the audio book and it's got chapters read by different celebrities and musicians and actors. And it's just incredibly satisfying and it's incredibly inspiring. So I want to pass along that recommendation that I'm really, really, really loving the Beastie Boys book. And maybe if I try hard enough, we can get the Beastie Boys to come on Dopey. So if you guys are looking for a Dopey target, try the Beastie Boys. Even though they're not addicts, they would be such good guests. Try Mike D or Ad-Rock and see if we can get them to come on Dopey. I actually met them both at Katz's. And Ad-Rock I met pre-Dopey. And Mike D, I think Chris was still alive and I didn't want to bother him because I didn't really see how he would be a good dopey guest. But now I've decided he would be a good dopey guest. I actually gave Mike D's like stepfather a dopey card, but I don't think Mike D ever saw it. So if we want to start pursuing dopey guests, maybe we should start there. I don't know. Put that in the back of your head. In other news, I went to lunch today with Linda and Susan and we went to fucking Burger King. And I've been, like, so good on my diet for months. I gave up keto, but I decided I was going to, like, do a modified keto where, like, just lower sugar, lower carbs, and I'm finding, like, I'm losing it. It's going out the window, and and Susan wanted the crown, and Linda wanted grease, and somehow I found myself at Burger King, and now I feel just disgusting. Uh, I ordered the fish sandwich. I ate it like my mother would have eaten it, like without the roll. And I was starving, so I ate half of Susan's cheeseburger. Then she wanted nuggets, so I got her nuggets, which I ate with barbecue sauce and the the uh, honey mustard sauce, which is really much better than the barbecue sauce. And I ate a bunch of fries, and which is ironic because our guest today is one of the most... It's He's billed as one of the most... I don't think most fittest is correct English, but one of the most fit men on the planet. His name is Rich Roll. He has an amazing book that I found to be very inspiring as well called Finding Ultra, which um, I'm certainly not an endurance athlete nor vegan superhero, and yet I was inspired by Rich Roll's book. So check out Finding Ultra as well. Um, It's funny to uh, be introducing such a, a fit and healthy man with a stomach full of Burger King, but I guess that's uh, that's par for the dopey course. So here he is, Rich Roll. Check it out. I have the pleasure of talking to maybe the sweetest person in endurance, athletics, podcasting, food preparation, writing, you name it. We just went through technical hell, and he's still here smiling. Welcome podcasting and endurance athlete, athletic athlete legend Rich Roll. Welcome to the show. Take two, my friend. Holy. I've been there. I've been there. So I know what it, I know the stress and the consternation of uh, technology not cooperating. No, but this Riverside looks very slick. I like it. It's good. Yeah. This is going to be your new jam. All right. Well, maybe it will be. Um, so Rich Roll, uh, just a beautiful thing that I get to connect with you. You've been in my head. I've listened to your your podcast. I've listened to your book, uh, an incredibly quick nine hour listen to your beautiful, yeah. melodious voice. And um, I'm like a very unlikely rich role fan. 
because like I've never had any fitness and I never considered fitness. I mean, I've always wanted to look better, but I never considered actually becoming athletic. When you became athletic, what was the thing that drove you into it? Well, sports, uh, endurance sports specifically, have always been like a vehicle for self-discovery in my experience. I started out as a swimmer as a kid, and that really, you know, took me to some pretty cool and interesting places and taught me a lot about myself. And in sobriety, it, it took, you know, I was a decade sober before I dipped my toe back into being an athlete again. But I did it not because I had some design on becoming a competitive athlete in my 40s, but I was, you know, grappling with a lot of confusing existential questions about, you know, what I was doing with my fucking life. And I knew myself well enough to know that the best way to try to find answers to those questions were was by kind of going within. And um, endurance is a, is, a, is a vehicle for that. So when you say... You know, you enjoyed the book, but you don't consider yourself an athlete or, you know, that's never been something that you're, you're interested in. Um, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't really consider the book to be like an athlete memoir as much as it is a story about self-discovery and the different ways in which we, you know, find ways to do that to better self-actualize. Well, I think that's totally true. And um, as an addict who had to find himself like I could totally relate to the book. And as somebody that wants self-discovery, it's like self-discovery is almost thrust upon us in recovery, like it or not. Like Mm -hmm. I don't like, and that's an interesting thing. I think about sobriety and recovery. I wasn't looking for myself. I wasn't looking to find myself. I knew I had to stop taking heroin or my life was uh, not going to change. But that's when, like, I went to a meeting this morning, and, and self-discovery is built into the process of, of, of recovery. It sounds like this loop, but it's this opportunity to be happy more than anything. Right, right. Well, we all come in, and we just, like, just all we want is to be free of that craving to just not use. And if that's all that it is, like, that's such a huge win. And what we end up getting instead is like this rule book for life that's that's never ending. You know, they say the road, you know, the road continues to narrow, like things that we used to do that don't necessarily in our minds relate to, you know, drinking or using drugs suddenly become intolerable because as we continue to grow and evolve and expand and become more self-actualized, certain habits that we've been doing our whole lives become intolerable or at odds with that emergent person, you know, that we're, that we're stepping into. And that's really the beautiful kind of underappreciated gift of sobriety. Like we come into these rooms and we're supported by all of these people who ask nothing of us, who are willing to help. And the transformation that's possible, that's at your fingertips, if you're willing to grab onto it is virtually limitless. Right on. I think I, I totally agree. Uh, one of the things that really stood out to me in the book is uh, your obsessiveness, right? And as a drug addict, I know that I'm totally obsessive, like I was obsessive using. I'm, a, I'm still obsessed with myself. I'm obsessed with my stupid show, whatever. Um, the obsessiveness of an athlete, like 
how did how did that come to you? Like when you started swimming when you were a kid, when did you find yourself obsessed? I think that began shortly after I started to figure out the equation between work and progress. Like I realized that I wasn't the most talented swimmer, but um, when I put a certain amount of work in that I would get results and that became almost an addictive relationship. You know, swimming really was my first drug of choice. I just, I, I just was completely consumed by it. And I looked at it as a means or a vehicle to um, kind of uh, escape from the pain and circumstances of, of my adolescence, but also as a path towards, you know, becoming, uh, you know, somebody like that I wasn't, you know, it was like a path forward, uh, some kind of success trajectory. But learning that the more work I put in, the more success I would, I, I, I got, that became an obsession for me. And, you know, I, I ended up like, you know, just being the guy who would, you know, show up at the pool before everybody else and stay late and go the extra mile, like the obsessiveness that I would later apply to my drinking and using, you know, really uh, was crafted in those early years in my relationship to sport. And, and you describe it in the book that your mother put you in the water as a baby and, uh, and was like, let's see what you do. And, and, she, and you described your mother seeing a look in your eye, a longing for the pool, you know? Um, yeah. When did you feel like, I mean, I know that when I was a kid, we would go to a summer camp, right, in New Hampshire in the summers. And I felt very much on the outside of the world at summer camp. And when I went swimming, I remember I would like hit the water and then I would dive under the water and the bubbles coming up into my face was like this incredible like world. And I thought, wow, that's another place. And I tried to live as much of my summer under the water as I possibly could as yeah. kind of like a respite. Um, and I never was competitive. Like I'm very competitive now, you know, in, in my head against podcasts and shit like yeah. that bullshit. And I was a competitive waiter. I was a very competitive waiter that I wanted to blow away all the other waiters. But as a kid, I didn't have that competitive feeling. My father was an athlete and I, mm. and I strayed away from competing. Uh, but the water felt safe but I never felt like it should be competitive. Like when did your love of the water meet your love of competition? Like when did those things join? Hmm. Well, I think backing up, first of all, there is something magical and mystical and special about the water. Uh, I, you know, it really, when you're, when you're underwater, it is like you're back in the womb and it feels safe. You feel protected. And as alcoholics, we have, a disease, a dis-ease, like a lack of ease with ourselves and a feeling of disconnection. And there's something about, at least for me, being underwater where it ameliorates that and you feel at home, you feel safe, you feel protected, you feel um, like it mutes out all the confusing signals of the world. So there's that. Um, and then the competitiveness, it's like, a match made in heaven for me because it's like I would gravitate towards that without any competitive, uh, you know, inclination. But then the fact that I was actually good at this thing and it could actually take me places fed this obsessive quality. And the combination of those two things just made it like this is, I just, this was like my home, like this is where I'm going to live. And I did that for 
uh, you know, throughout my you know junior high, high school, and most of my college years. And in that period of time, like that's kind of the classic time that alcoholics and addicts get started. That's the classic like suburban high school shit or whatever, drinking and smoking weed. And I, I didn't get into drinking and drugs in high school profoundly. It took I got into it in college just like you did. Um, did you avoid it in high school? Because I'm sure the kids around were, were getting high and drinking and listening to Led Zeppelin or whatever, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of that. And I was like the goody two-shoes, super judgmental kid who couldn't be bothered with that bullshit because I have more important things to do. And I just remember having a lot of judgment of my peers going out and doing that. And I just thought, that's a waste of time. Like, I got, I got work to do because I'm going places. So I was the kid who was waking up at 4.45 every morning to go to swim practice for an hour and a half, going to school, two hours of swim practice after school, then homework, then lights out at nine so I could do it again. So there just wasn't any space for that at that point in my life. So I was very, you know, very late to the game in terms of experimentation. But it's so amazing that you had your purpose. You had your own mm. purpose, which was your escape, which is just incredible. Yeah. It's like when I was a kid, I ch- when I was like a teenager, I would chastise my friends for smoking weed and I would call them posers. Yeah. And I would be like, but I wasn't doing anything good. I was just like uh-huh. watching TV. I wasn't getting up <laughs> to go to the pool. I was just like watching TV and doing nothing. But, um, I, uh, so I, and I also was, was fat. Like I'm still a little bit fat when I was a kid, like I would see the swimmers and they'd be so ripped and I was, and it never occurred to me that I should jump into the pool and get in shape. So that's a uh-huh. great, that's a, I could have used that self-esteem cause I, uh-huh. I dove right into drugs. As soon as the drugs made me feel safe, um, I felt safe. And the funny thing is, or the interesting thing is to me that, um, that idea of knowing when you were a kid that alcohol and drugs weren't about it for you and the same for me so that when I got sober, the idea of getting to my genuine self was at my fingertips. Like it was right there because mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. that kind of established when I was 15, 16, like who I wanted to be. Was that mm-hmm. useful to you as well? Yes and no. I mean, I get what you're saying. I think for me, it's a little bit different because- I was so driven and that drive, I think, blinded me to any kind of self-inquiry about what it was that um, I actually might want to do or be interested in exploring because I was on this track, like, I'm going to be the best swimmer and I'm going to get the best grades and I'm going to get into all these schools and then I'll get the job and I'll get the grad school and I'll get the thing. So it was all about Um, playing that kind of game and succeeding at that very conventional, you know, trajectory and path. And, you know, a big, a big part of that was that this, my self-esteem was premised on, on that success and the validation that I would get. Like if I get into this school, then I'm worthy or I'm loved. And so for me, sobriety has been very much a journey of untangling that knot and, and, you know, trying to, you know, understand that, you know, I have value outside of any kind of achievements. And it's a battle that I continue to wave. Like you had mentioned, like you get competitive with the podcast. I mean, fuck yeah. Like I'm competitive with what I do. Like I want to put the best shit out there. And I look at the, you know, iTunes rankings way more than I should and get caught up in all of that kind of nonsense. But that's really a distraction from 
the real work of, of you know, uh, of this spiritual journey that we're on, of just trying to live our authentic life and connect with what's real and what our intuition is trying to tell us and to just express that as honestly and as vulnerably as possible. I think that's very, very beautiful and well said. Um, but let's get to the dirty, the dirty part of the story. Yeah. When, uh, like, as this do-gooder, you know, this incredibly, like, you're a world-class swimmer. Every person that you swam against was like an Olympian. You were in that world of high-end, high-competition mm-hmm. swimming. And I'll say it, you know, your, alco- your alcoholism derailed your swimming career. You know, hundred percent. So, like, I mean, does did that? Like, when did you realize that? And how much did you enjoy drinking? Why don't you take us through like the beginning of drinking in college and what, what how your life was transformed? And w- did you have a I have arrived as an alcoholic moment? Yeah, no, I think it was a little more gradual and subtle than that. I mean, I certainly was introduced to to drinking mostly on these recruiting trips that I started to take my senior year in high school, where you get, you know, kind of courted around by all these colleges who would fly you out to these places and show you a good time. And that was my first exposure to like college partying. And I just loved everything about it. I definitely had that experience of, of getting drunk for the first time and feeling that warm blanket enveloping me and feeling like that was the solution to all my problems and the answers to all my questions. And I just wanted to feel like that all the time. But I was a pretty high-functioning um, problem drinker from the get-go. It, it wasn't like I immediately knew I was an alcoholic, but I, but I definitely had an awareness that my relationship with alcohol was different than my peers, that it might l- present a problem later on. Um, but you just mute all that out. Like, the denial, you know, is pretty powerful. So, for sure, it began to erode my swimming career and my academic career from the get-go, um, but not in any kind of, you know, I, you know, my, 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 my drinking and using is pretty pedestrian. I don't have like the craziest stories. I mean, I have stories like everybody else, but they're not super wild, at least not in the beginning. Um, but there is this kind of erosion of your soul that takes place where all these aspirations that I had for my life kind of became less important and it became a little bit easier to sleep in and not go to swim practice. And, my grade slipped and I changed majors. I got, just wasn't interested in the things that I was, you know, earlier interested in. And, you know, my swimming career suffered. And finally, you know, by the time I was a senior in high school, I just quit the team. I didn't care about it anymore. And I was just focused mainly on where the next good time was going to take place and kind of rested on my laurels or just thought, you know, I'm smart enough to be able to pass these tests by doing the least amount possible, which was counter to my whole approach was to, which was to like outwork everybody else. Like all of that kind of went out the window and it just progressed slowly. I mean, it took 15 years at the end, it was very dark and depressing and sad and pathetic. There was nothing cool or sexy or rock star about it whatsoever. Um, but uh, there wasn't like one moment where I went, oh shit, you know, it just was like, you know, uh, just this gradual erosion, I guess, is how I would characterize it. And when, when you got to school, you were like, I, I, you wanted to be a doctor, you had interest in, in medicine, and then your father was a lawyer, so you were like, maybe I'll just see what that's about. And I guess it checks off those same kind of like societal boxes in your mind right. where you get that good endorphin from being the good 
boy who's now an attorney like your yeah. dad or whatever. And But you wound up going to Stanford, and then you went to Cornell, which were two Ivy League mm-hmm. schools, and you slumming it was beating, like, a million people who, like, were working as hard as they could, which is probably, like, par for the course for you, which is confusing, right? Yeah, it's confusing. I mean, you know, I have to check my privilege a little bit. You know, like, I, I you know, I've, I've always been taken care of and, and um, you know, was was lucky enough to get a really good education in high school, which kind of set me up for all this other stuff. And swimming certainly was, you know, a primary factor in how I got into Stanford. I was the last person admitted into Cornell Law School off the wait list. <laughs> so, you know, if I if I if I got um, anything better than the lowest uh, in my class, that was a win at that point for me. And I really skated through law school. Like I barely remember that. Meanwhile, my alcoholism is slowly escalating and escalating and escalating. Like I don't know how I graduated from law school. Well, you because you have some intrinsic smarts and some ability and, and, and you know, like you can put yourself down, but I'm going to tell you, mm. you're an exceptional person, Ritual. I'm going to give you a pat oh, on the back. Mm. Just, right. just I'll, I'll receive that. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> just, just how compassionate you were with my technical problem. I can see right into your soul. Yeah. And, uh, and it's good. You've got a good soul, Ritual. So, like, that's when we get to the bright lights, big city section of your story where you're between New York and, and San Francisco, like what did, did you, did you do drugs? I mean, I remember in the book you said that like you made sure not to ever do heroin. You prop and, and I felt like you were avoiding Coke too, because you were scared that you would like it too much. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it was. I knew that, that alcohol created a huge problem for me. So two things were going on in my mind at that time. The first was, I made a decision to avoid all the hard drugs because um, if alcohol was such a problem for me, I knew if I tried cocaine, it would be game over. I was certain that I would love it. And it was just better to have never experienced it so that I wouldn't set in motion any kind of craving. Like if I don't know what that feels like, then uh, that's a lot easier than trying it and then trying not to do it. And I just knew there was like a self-preservation thing inside of me that just said, stay away from that because also that might accelerate this whole uh, situation and I'll have to quit drinking sooner than I would like. Like it was also a, a way of protecting my uh, future ability to continue to drink at the same time. And I was broke. I didn't have any money to spend on anything fancy either. Well, but when you became a lawyer, you, you had a nice, you had a decent living yeah. and, and you could, yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is you weren't interested, you know what I mean? Like, which is a good thing, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. to not, like I was way too interested in all this bullshit and my heroes were not Olympian swimmers. They were like degenerate guitar players and shit. Right. And like, I had that fantasy in my head, but still like, if you don't have that fantasy or you do, addiction is the same, you know, which is, yeah. which is kind of why we're here. Um, which I think is a beautiful thing. I think it's a great unifying thing. Um, what were some of the worst moments in your alcoholism? Like one of the things we like to do on the show is kind of tell our worst stories. Like, can you think Mm -hmm. of a real bad one that you'd like to share? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple, uh, you know, probably the most, well, 
what set in motion some of my worst experiences was a marriage that went sideways on me and ended on the honeymoon where I sent my quote unquote wife home from the honeymoon, never to be seen from again. It would take like two hours to explain how that all happened, but it was so emotionally painful for me. I mean, it was a wedding where I had everybody that I cared about in the world was in attendance and it just flamed out before it even like got out of the gate. And it was so embarrassing and humiliating. And at that time, I was trying to be sober. But uh, in the wake of that, uh, the emotions were too overwhelming. And I just relapsed and had to drink and then ended up drinking for a year and a half um, to kind of get through that. But during that period of time is where things got super dark. I started drinking in the morning, you know, the vodka tonic in the shower, uh, you know, trying to sneak drinks at the law firm during the day. Like it was really unraveling and getting pretty dark. But one of the <laughs> one of the classics was, I uh, I remember waking up hungover. It was a weekday, and I'm working at a big law firm at the time, and I just thought, fuck it, I'm not I'm not going to work today. I'm going to go to Las Vegas, and I literally you know just got in my car, went to the airport, and bought a Southwest ticket. And flew to Las Vegas for God knows why. I'm not a gambler. Like, I don't know (laughs) what over. I was like, I just needed to, you know, be in a blackout state um, outside of Los Angeles, I guess. And got a hotel room and just drank, went to, I don't, and then I don't really remember what happened, but I do remember waking up the next day and I had lost my wallet with my ID and my credit card. And, um, had to figure out like how to get home after that. Like, and didn't know where I lost it. I didn't know what had happened. You know, it's like, there's worse stories out there. But for me, that was like a Rubicon. Like, I can't believe, like, what is happening to me? Totally, totally. And, and how did you like pull yourself into recovery? Like, would you, I mean, like you said, you didn't have an absolute moment, but like there must, do you remember the day before the first day uh, of getting it together? Yeah. Well, I got two DUIs um, in rapid succession, like in a period of two and a half months. Um, And in LA, when you get pulled over for DUI, like they don't fuck around. Like they just assume that you're high on crack, that you have a shotgun, you know, that you're, you got, you got a dead body in the, (laughs) in the trunk and they treat you accordingly. And the first time I got pulled over um, at like two, two, three in the morning, I blew a two nine and rear-ended an elderly woman. Uh, I went to jail that night. And then two months later, got pulled over, blew a two seven going the wrong way down a one-way street in Beverly Hills. The cop who arrested me knew the law firm partner that I was working for because he was representing the Beverly Hills Police Department. So I almost lost my job, but that ended up... Um, uh, you know, he, my boss was like, listen, you know, I don't know what the fuck you're doing, but you're out of your mind and you need to go see this lawyer. And that lawyer was the first person who said to me, look, man, you're an alcoholic and I'm a good lawyer, but I'm not a miracle worker. Like you got two DUIs, like blowing crazy blood alcohol levels. You're going to jail and there's not really much that I can do about it. And that terrified me, but he's the one who got me uh, into going to meetings for the first time, but I was going to just get the court card checked, uh, showing up late, sitting in the back, avoiding eye contact, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, I didn't get involved in any kind of meaningful conversations with anyone, but at least I was showing up. But 
I would relapse and relapse and relapse because I, I didn't really understand what it meant to work the program. Um, my parents at this time had completely disassociated from me. They didn't want anything to do with me. But they did say, listen, we found this addiction medicine psychiatrist in L.A. If you do one thing, like maybe you should go and talk to this guy. And I agreed to go do that. And this guy was awesome. He you know, was very patient with me. But he basically was very blunt in saying, you're not going to get this resolved until you go to treatment. And I didn't want to go to treatment. Um, so I made a deal with him that if I relapsed again, that, uh, that I would go. And I, of course I did relapse again and being this honest stand up guy, this man of my word, uh, I, I said, okay, I'll go. And that's how I ended up in a treatment center. Um, he got me a bed at this place called Springbrook Northwest, which is now, uh, Hazleton in Oregon, in rural Oregon, kind of outside of Portland. And that really was what saved my life and changed everything. And when you joke and you say you were a man of your word, you were a man of your word, like, right? Right. But it is funny because like, you know, meanwhile, I'm a complete dirtbag and I'm unreliable and, you know, I'm incapable of being honest, but that's the way the alcoholic mind works, right? Like you think that you're this, you know, this ethical operator, you know, when in fact you're not, but that was the thing that I planted my flag on. Like I, you know, I do what I say. And he said that, so I'm going to go. Did you take it to heart that you were an alcoholic before that? When did it set in that it was real? Like that you had this malady? Yeah. I mean, I knew, I knew, you know, probably, so I, I ended up going to treatment in 98. So I probably knew around 94, that I was a straight up alcoholic and around 96, I would even say it out loud. Like I was fully cognizant of this problem that I had, but yet still incapable of actually doing anything about it. Like I just hadn't suffered enough. And was it in the, the, the rehab that you kind of had a spiritual breakthrough, like that you kind of got those tools of recovery in effect or when did, when did those hit you? Yeah, I, I, you know, that was my first introduction to spiritual principles. Uh, I, you know, I worked the steps when I was in treatment and had a spiritual experience after doing my fifth step. Um, and that's when things really clicked in for me. Um, and I, I fell in love with the process of all of it. See, I think your story is so fascinating because, you know, basically you bottomed out, you got sober, and then you... Your, your life changed so dramatically. You fell in love. You got married. You, you got a family together. And like, then you hit another bottom. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's like one of my favorite parts about your story. You had this bottom, uh, this alcoholic bottom. And the bottom was your boss being like, you're going to fucking, I'm going to fire you. And then you had to deal with right. the, 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 the psychiatrist and you're like, fuck it, I'm going to go. And then you repurpose yourself in recovery and your family comes together. And I'm only moving it through because I don't want you to, I don't want to not get to the yeah. end of your story. Um, uh, and you find yourself out of shape, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, so how do you compare, <coughs> compare your bottoms? I find that to be fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's a very astute observation. It certainly was a second bottom and it was, it was precipitated by a health scare, but what it really was, I think what's instructive about it for me or for anybody who's in recovery is that it was kind of an existential bottom, right? Like I had been sober for 10 years. Like I had been going to 
you know, thousands of meetings and my life was all about recovery and the steps and participating and all my friends were in recovery. I had completely re-engineered my entire life premised on the, on a, on this really strong foundation of sobriety. But yet, you know, we all have these blind spots. I was still adamant, like the, the really, the kind of animating driving force in my life was, I need to get back to that guy that I was before, before I fucked everything up. So I need to become that responsible, upwardly mobile guy that, that culture, you know, approves of. So even though there was nothing about being a lawyer that made me happy, I was going to grind it out the same way that I ground it out in the pool and become a partner and, you know, get the stuff. And I was succeeding in that quest, but it was so, um, contrary to my fundamental makeup. So despite all of the sobriety that I had, I still hadn't done a lot of interior work to really connect with who I truly was. Like I was still operating on a very surface level. And I think, you know, the pain of, of, of living at odds with, you know, my fundamental blueprint coincided with this health scare because meanwhile I was medicating with food and put on all this weight and, you know, from the outside looking in, it did look like my, I had things sorted out and my life was good. But on the inside, I was still dying and there was so much sobriety still to be had. And so, you know, I have this incident that I talk about in the book where right before I turned 40, I was walking up a flight of stairs to go to bed and, you know, I had tightness in my chest and heart disease runs in my family. It was a scary episode where I thought something was really terribly wrong with my health. And that was a very crystallized moment, concrete, uh, you know, line in the sand moment that, that was certainly a second bottom. And because, you know, I have all this sober history and I knew what happened when that first bottom happened and the decisions that I made and how drastically that changed my life, I had this palpable sense that I was being gifted with another opportunity to like take it deeper. And I had this enough self-awareness to understand that that's, these things don't come around too often and I had to like jump on it or it would pass. And ultimately that's what I did. Um, and that's what kind of set in motion this whole next phase of my entire life. I think that's really interesting. And like, you know, which bottom do you think was worse? Like the, the bottom in the alcohol or the bottom from the cheeseburgers and the stairs? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. I mean, certainly, you know, being, being, you know, deep in the throes of alcoholism is a horror I don't wish upon anyone. Like the pain of that is just unspeakable. The pain from the second bottom was a different kind of pain. It was more like a, a soul pain. And it was a sense that I was just living somebody else's life. And it just became intolerable to continue to do that. I think that's amazing also, because that's what we're talking about, like living your true life, being who you want to be and getting to be that person. And, um, and, and like when you're living those 10 years, kind of not swimming, not, not being the guy who you wanted to be, did it wear on your head? Like, was it something you're like, I'm fucking out of shape. I haven't swam in X amount of years. I'm not doing what I used to do to make me happy. Was that kind of mm -hmm. percolating or did it just hit you when you're at a, at a wind and the stairs and you're like, I'm going to have a heart attack? 
Well, no, it's it's percolating, but the denial works the same way. It's like, well, that's who I was when I was young, but now I'm this person. And I'm going to make this work, and I'm going to fucking jam this square peg into this round hole until it makes until it fits. God damn it, you know. And that's just what I'm doing until it stops working. You know, it's just like that's a drug like anything else, and it works until it doesn't. It doesn't. Right, right. And and you got hit by the lightning bolt. Like I love the the addict alcoholic uh, origin story, like. Spider-Man gets bit by the radioactive spider. You're like this swimmer who has this moment on the stairs and it's like Shazam, you know, plant power, rich roll is born. And then all of a sudden you put yourself into like, like the, the craziest journey of all. Like to me, like your story is so crazy because of what the lengths you were willing to go to become the person you wanted to be. It's like fucking, mm-hmm. it's insanity. Um, and and it started with 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 the uh, uh, a cleanse, right? That's where it all started. Right. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I did after that staircase episode was I did a seven day like vegetable juice detox cleanse, whatever you want to fucking call it. But I did it not because I, I I was like I need to remove toxins. I did it because it sounded hard and it was something I'd never done before, and I needed to figure out the closest, um, like, like an experience that would mimic what that first week in rehab feels like when you're detoxing off drugs. Like I needed to be like, well, okay. Um, I don't do drugs or alcohol anymore, but like I'm eating all this shitty food and I'm treating myself like shit. Like I need to go to detox for that. So let's just do some crazy one week thing to, you know, reboot the operating system and wipe the slate clean. And, and that was really, my thinking around that and it's, it succeeded in that because that was kind of a hard, you know, it was a hard thing, but you know, when you're weaning yourself off heroin, the first couple days or however many days are the worst ever. Right. But when you finally get to the other side of that, it's like your eyes open up and you know, the world looks different than it did before. And the colors are a little bit more vivid and that's the same experience I had with this. And that gave me, um, the 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 motivation to continue to go on this search of figuring out ways of eating and treating myself so that I could so that I could self integrate in a way that I had been unable to prior. It's so funny because I remember every time I kicked heroin, I would think that when I was done kicking, I'd like be in shape. I'd have like a six pack and I'd be muscular and stuff. (laughs) And it's like it never happened. And it's like when when you wound up because like you went from that to like you had friends who were triathletes you had a community Mm -hmm. of these world-class swimmers world-class athletes and where you're like fuck i kind of miss being able to be in their circle like you had a roommate who did it like what what was the thing that drew you into the endurance athletics well it, it wasn't an overnight thing i mean initially all I wanted to do, I mean, there was a lot of vanity, you know, at play here as well. Like I was 50 pounds. I wasn't like morbidly obese or anything, but I was like a heavy dude. And I was like, I didn't, I still, you know, the denial was I would look in the mirror and still think that I saw that Stanford swimmer, but that was not the reality. And so the first thing was like, I got to drop this weight. Like I feel like shit. I look like shit. Um, so, you know, that was motivation. But what happened was, so my wife bought me a bike for my birthday and I just, you know, pulled an old pair of running shoes out of the closet and I went back to the pool here and there. And it was really, um, the joy of rediscovering 
that those simple things were what made me the happiest. Like it was just jumping into the pool on a warm day or, you know, what the sun felt like on my shoulder, you know, running on the trails at dawn. It was reconnecting with my physical self and remembering what a big part of my life that had been prior and how happy that it made me. And this, you know, um, confusion over how I could have just stopped doing these things that brought me joy. And that was it. It wasn't like I'm going to go and win this race or do any of this kind of stuff. It was like, I miss this. This makes me happy. It's not, you know, the car that I'm leasing or any of that other bullshit. It's these really primal, simple things. And I just made this decision that I was going to make these activities a priority in my life because they made me feel better. No matter what was going on, that I was going to carve out time to do this. And what happened was, you know, I very quickly lost all that weight and I was dialing in my nutrition and learning about that. And I was making these crazy gains in a pretty short amount of time. And that's what led me to start thinking about doing something that would challenge me of trying to recapture, uh, you know, some, some of that um, enthusiasm for athleticism that had been kind of the animating force in my life as a young person. And I think, you know, in truth, part of that was motivated also by the fact that I knew that I never achieved my potential as a swimmer because alcoholism destroyed that. Uh, it seemed crazy to be in my 40s and want to do that. But it's also like, look, man, you know, it's a it's a midlife crisis thing. Like all the you know guys turn 40 and they want to do an Ironman. It's, you know, it's a it's a trope at the same time. Right. It's it's not that unique in that regard. But I just took it a little bit further than most people. And what was the dawning of the veganism? I mean, it really began initially um, as a way of trying to create an easy-to-follow roadmap around healthy nutrition um, that I could adhere to. And, and I think its roots are really in 12-step because when you come into the program – you learn immediately that you're either drinking and using or you're sober. Like it's a very binary thing, right? You can't like use a little bit and say you're sober. It's, it's an either or situation. And I use that um, kind of uh, mentality or rubric around nutrition. And I tried a bunch of different diets, but there was something about being vegan that is analogous to sobriety and 12-step in that you're either eating animal products or you're not, right? Like it's a, it's a one, it's a one rule thing. And it kind of distilled this down to something that I had already had experience with. Like you step over this line, like, okay, I don't drink or use drugs anymore. Okay. Well, now I'm not going to, now I'm not going to eat animal products anymore. That was the, um, kind of first step into it. And again, it was motivated by health concerns. It was motivated by, uh, it was motivated by vanity concerns. Um, but over the years, I've now been vegan for, for 14 years at this point. Um, you know, I've learned so much about um, this, this lifestyle and these other issues that really weren't part of the decision early on now are the most important, which are the environmental considerations of the foods that we eat and the, um, the, 
you know, implications for animal welfare that uh, our dietary choices uh, obviously um, involve. See, I, I, I find it all very interesting and I'm like vain, but not willing to do what's necessary to combat my, yeah. my problem. And so like me and my wife decided we were going to do fucking keto, right? So we do keto and um, I know that keto is going to kill me. You know what I'm saying? I lost like 20 uh-huh. pounds pretty quickly. And then I start listening to your book and I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm doing the exact opposite of your book. I'm just like eating fat and fucking vegetables <laughs> right. or whatever. No, no, none of the good stuff that you're eating. And I'm like, okay, rituals coming on the show. I got to stop with this keto. I got to try to be vegan. And so one day I wake up and I made myself like a smoothie with bananas and almond milk and I'm like almond butter. Uh-huh. I'm like, I'm rich rolling this thing. And then lunch, I like did a stir fry with cauliflower and broccoli and peppers. And then dinner, my wife got sick and I'm making sweet potato, potatoes for my kids. And I'm like, ah, and I blew it. I put butter in it. The next thing you know, I'm eating lamb and it's over in three hours or something. <laughs> and I fucked the whole thing up like immediately. <laughs> But like I have a dream, Rich. I have a dream that I want to. I want, mm. and I had John Joseph at my house, and he's like looking down at me because I work in a fucking meat factory, and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, like I I can tell, I know in my heart that that is the path. You know, like I just yeah. don't know how to find that path. That path is not close to me. Um, I don't know. Like I want to. I, I we. Well, I think you can. I th- I think you can. I think you have all the tools to do it. Like when you tell the story of you know you put butter on the sweet potato and then it was just game over and it was lamb for dinner. That is no different from you know if you if you had a sponsee call you up and say uh, I've been sober for you know however long and I just I picked up a drink today. Like what's the advice that you give? You're like just go to a meeting right away. Like get back on the horse. Like don't dwell on that and use it as an excuse to just go out and go crazy. Like right. recalibrate. Try to understand what led to that relapse. And you can do the same thing with your food and diet choices. Acceptance. You're talking about accepting where we're at and then keep moving the way, the way we want to go. And being in the moment, like what is the next best decision that I can make as, as opposed to letting that lapse, you know, fuel a bunch of crazy behavior. Absolutely. Yesterday I had a fried chicken sandwich. I ate fucking fried Brussels sprouts, <laughs> onion rings. I had a plate of Come chocolate. On. Anyway, though, I, I, another, I know Katz's, but you're also in that neighborhood. There's probably 10 vegan restaurants. All, there's so many unbelievable vegan restaurants you know, all over lower Manhattan. Yeah. But I mean, this COVID is wiping out like so many of them. Yeah, that's it's true. crazy. No, but that's not the excuse. I, I'd rather blame my children. My children won't let me be vegan. I, I have to blame them. <laughs> yeah, it's their fault. But the other thing, <laughs> the other thing that I really want to talk about my favorite, I think, I mean, there's so many fucking crazy things that you have done. You know, your story is a story of, uh, intensity and extremes And like one of the things that spoke to me is it's like as a drug addict, you know, you're willing to do anything to get drugs. You know what I mean? Like at every opportunity, at any opportunity, at all cost. And there's sort of a little bit of that in the ultra endurance athletics, Mm -hmm. like that you're not going to stop, that once you start, you're going to go till the end. Do you see any sort of parallel there? Because I really did. 
Oh, yeah, there's a huge parallel there. And it, it can be a slippery slope. Like, you got to check yourself. Is my relationship to this thing alcoholic or is it healthy? Like, when you show up at these races, you'd be surprised the percentage of people that are in recovery. Like, tons of people in recovery, tons of tattoos. Like, there's something about this, you know, these kinds of events that attract that type of personality. And, you know, I look at them as, as, you know, like sort of spiritual adventures, like they're opportunities for self-exploration and personal growth. They're, they're like these crazy active, you know, technicolor meditations where you're forced to confront yourself um, at your most vulnerable and there's something to be mined and learned from that. So, yes, you can approach these things in a very alcoholic way where you're just, I'm training for this thing and that's the only thing in my life that, that makes sense or matters. Or you can say, I'm showing up for whatever God's going to throw in my direction with this and I'm going to come out the other side changed and hopefully will have learned something instructive about myself and the world that I can carry forward and, and use to be of service to other people. Right. No, I get it. And and I have to say, like, when I started the book, I didn't expect to like it as much as I enjoyed it. Uh, because, like, I'm the opposite of an endurance athlete. And how could how could reading about running make me feel good? And then yeah. when you kind of describe that first run where you just ran and ran and ran and found yourself in this spiritual moment, in this meditative zone and kind of linked up with the swimming did it did it harken back to the idea of higher power? Did it trigger that sort of goal or or process in recovery that we we look for? I mean, the goal aspect of it came a little bit later, but it was certainly a way of of deepening my relationship with with my higher power. And there was no question in my mind that something you know greater was at play. Like I felt this kind of indescribable sense that even though it didn't really make any sense why I was continuing to run further and further and further, that on some level I had a knowingness that that was going to be the path forward. And by continuing to show up for that, I would get the answers that I was seeking and it would ultimately lead me um, to a better path for myself. So none of it had anything to do with rationality or logic. It was purely a faith-based kind of spiritual practice um, that was complemented by this irrational sense of knowing that I can only describe, uh, you know, as being spiritual and related to, you know, my relationship with God. Right. And it's like, where does one begin and the other one end kind of thing? Right. Like, like that's the interesting thing also about you is you found this, like I, I recently started meditating on a daily basis and I find this pleasure that I never experienced before in doing it. This relief, this pleasure. I used to just sit there and be like, what's going to happen? And now I know what's happening is what's going to happen. And I take this great pleasure in it. And like, I imagine like you had that experience in your running and you already knew that about you in the swimming. There was the triathloning. Is that a word? Triathloning? You can make um, it a word. Okay. Is the, was the triathloning just the obvious next step or did it, did it just put all these things together where you could prove something, but you also had the spiritual kind of enjoyment of it. So that was built in. Yeah, it was all of those things. It was like all these different puzzle pieces that suddenly 
you know, I figured out a way to piece them together and, and it all made sense in this, you know, kind of beautiful and strange way. One of my favorite things is as you're training as a, as a person who, uh, need, who, who trains to win, you know what I mean? You were a competitive person. Uh, when you, when you did one of your first events and you realized that you didn't have the endurance and you got a coach who said, you need to go slow in order to go fast. I just loved hearing that phrase. Can you describe that phrase to the audience? Because I think that's a life phrase. I think yeah, that's a it, phrase that we can really adapt so many different things to. Yeah, 100%. I, I think it, what he said specifically was the prize doesn't go to the fastest person. It goes to the person who slows down the least, right? Meaning you have to stay in the game, and it's all about consistency, durability, showing up, day after day after day, like the perseverance and the cumulative effect of, you know, of of sort of continuously applying pressure on something that you want to actualize. And I think it's very relevant to sobriety. I mean, you were just talking about meditation and your experience in the early phases of, of playing around with that and not feeling like you were getting any benefit. And then at some point it it clicks in and you have this shift and that's because you continue to show up for it. You know, in sobriety, all we have is today and that's why we keep showing up and showing up and showing up and endurance sports really is no different. And it's no different from any goal that you want to manifest in your life. It's less about giant breakthroughs or something sexy that you can post on Instagram. And it's really just all about this kind of anonymous, invisible um, you know, grind, so to speak, that all of us have to endure in order to achieve a goal. So in the context of endurance sports, you have this impulse, like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to kill it and I'm going to push really hard. And it's not about that. It's almost, um, it's a surrender in the way surrender operates in sobriety. You have to surrender your will to this greater purpose. You show up for it, but it is in the kind of acceptance of what is and just kind of slowly moving forward piece by piece that ultimately you end up, you know, aimed towards the destination that you seek. Totally. I went to a meeting this morning and we were reading uh, the story about acceptance, you know, in the back of the book. The, and I don't think I had ever read it before about the doctor and he shoots like every drug and he learns acceptance. And I, I always really struggled with acceptance because I thought it put a cap on what I could do. Like if I accept my life, that means I accept it for the way it is without adding the component of striving and the component of accepting progress. Like I feel like what you did is you you set a bar and then you kept working to push the bar, accepting each level and pushing each level. Right. I mean, acceptance isn't sort of a fatalistic doctrine about the future of your life. It's a reckoning. It's an honest reckoning with what actually is in the moment so that you have a reality check on, on, you know, the objectivity of your situation. You can then apply your free will to build on that, but you can't do that accurately or properly unless you're you know, sort of rationally connected with the reality of your circumstances. That's something I always struggled with because I had assumed that the acceptance meant I better accept that I'm fucked. I better accept that it's yeah. not going to, if this is about it, it's not going to get any You could be like, I'm fucked today or I'm fucked right now. That doesn't mean I'm going to be fucked tomorrow. What are the things that I can do that are within my limited power to shift that? 
to unfuck yourself. Right. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the book is when you're training and you go for that long, long run and you realize you don't have any money. And yeah. uh, and you find yourself. Why don't you tell the story? I don't want to ruin it because it's it's such well, a crazy dopey story <laughs> without drugs. Like it's the craziest yeah. story. I know. So it was actually a long training ride. I was on my bike. Okay. And you know, just kind of contextualize it. At the time, um, we had like no money, and we were living in a nice house that we couldn't pay for. I could barely put food on the table. We had had our trash bins taken away because I couldn't pay the trash collector guy the 80 bucks or whatever it was. So they took away the bins, which meant we had to put our garbage in the back of our crappy minivan that had 200,000 miles on it and look for a dumpster somewhere like behind a supermarket to dump our trash. Like it was humiliating and embarrassing and very emasculating, especially given that, you know, I have this, you know, Ivy League pedigree and I had been a lawyer in a, you know, prestigious Los Angeles law firm, like making good money. And here I am like riding my bike and running all day. Like it made, that's why I say like it was a spiritual practice. It was an exercise in faith because it didn't make any sense. And I have to credit my wife because I had plenty of weak moments where I thought, this is absolutely insane. Like, what am I doing? I need to go get a job. And she would say, because her, her spiritual practice is much more robust than mine. She would say, no, like this is, this is the path. Like you are on this like Jedi warrior path and you have to see this through you know, we'll, we'll manage all of these challenges, but like you go out and do that thing. Meanwhile, all her friends were telling her she was losing her mind, but she really held that strength when my strength wavered. Um, so bringing it up to that particular incident, it was like an eight hour ride or something that I, that I was on that day. And it was on the, on the, on the heels of like a really rigorous training week. So I went into it already exhausted and I was, um, you know, like basically I'd ridden from where I live all the way to Ohio and was on my way back, which is a pretty long ride and, and experienced what we, we call an endurance bonking, which is where you completely run out of energy. And I had no nourishment on me. I had no food. I had no sustenance and, and, and was starting to like, um, get lightheaded. Like I was going to pass out. And I rode up on this kind of roadhouse roadside, like hamburger stand, on a country lane kind of in the middle of nowhere and went in and just thought, I, whatever they have to eat, like I got to eat it and realized that um, I had no money. Like I had a debit card that didn't work and I had no cash. Uh, we were overdrawn at the time. Like when I say no money, I mean like no money. And I ended up going behind the restaurant and like dumpster diving. And I, I'm vegan, but I ended up eating like a half-eaten cheeseburger and a bunch of like raunchy fries that were literally in the garbage, which was, you know, yeah, it is kind of like a dopey story. It's like, that's what you do when you're using, you know, this is a different, like there, this is a different version of that, I guess, in some regard. But, but um and that also tested like my resolve, like, are you really all in on this? Like, this is really crazy. Like you need to course correct, or are you just being tested for something greater? And it forced me to really grapple with those questions at the time because the humility, I mean, the, 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 the humility that I had to, you know, encounter to do that. I mean, it was just so, you know, is that's, that's what you do when you're desperate. And that's what the situation was at that time.
I think it's so interesting in so many ways. But my first question is, as you are a vegan and you're eating these, I mean, and you also were a cheeseburger lover prior to being a vegan. Yeah. Like how disgusting were the cheeseburgers out of the garbage? How like kind of like sin, sinfully like meat and you know <laughs> what I mean? Like was there any pleasure aspect to it? Like the ketchup or is it just horrible? You know, it's so funny as I've, I've told this story in interviews many times, but nobody has asked me this question and I'm like only – only an addict would ask this question. Yes, it's like you. so perfect, yes, right? Yes. And it's it's all of those things, man. It's like this is so disgusting, but also like it's kind of awesome that I get to do this and I just need to survive like whatever I need to like, you know, basically not pass out. And as disgusting as it was, it was also like, wow, I haven't had a cheeseburger in years. Like that's kind of good. Like I'm not a vegan who thinks that um who when I smell that kind of food I'm repulsed by it like that that activates like a cycle in cra- of of craving in me just like it does you know for the addict or the alcoholic who comes in close contact with their drug of choice so you know yeah I had that one incident and that was it but I was cognizant of like you know oh I could you know this is an addictive relationship just like other addictive relationships that I have in my life Totally um and the other thing is it's like I'm sure you read Siddhartha by Herman Hesse you know, the story, the story of the Buddha as when he's an ascetic in the woods. And I feel like that's what this part of your journey was. You were like full on ascetic. Is that how you pronounce it? Am I saying that right? Yeah, aesthetic. 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 Yeah, aesthetic. Not, I, not, not aesthetic. I didn't say aesthetic. aesthetic. I know, I did. Okay. I was correcting myself. All right, I just want to make sure that I'm on, I'm on <laughs> yeah. the path here. But that's what this reminds me of. Like you were full on, I will do. And then that's an interesting thing because as a heroin addict, I never got to that point. You know what I'm saying? I never dumpster dove for food. I never – like I was a real bougie drug addict. I needed cable TV to really enjoy my heroin um, uh-huh. because that's just – I didn't go to the – I didn't I, – my bottom <laughs> wasn't in the streets. If I was in the streets, I would have been like, take care of me. I can't handle it. But it's like the heroin addict who who is forced to dumpster dive, the heroin addict who's forced to be homeless, like – it's way different than having a goal of having this spiritual endurance athletics, but it's, it's being in a similar zone. So I think that's really interesting. You know, that- yeah, I mean, there is, there is something about, um, kind of stripping away all the frivolities of life and, you know, and, and kind of living in that, that, um, more pure state. I mean, there's also a little bit of, self-flagellation like you're wearing a hair shirt because you're going out and you're suffering and you're kind of beating yourself up Um, but there is a purification process to that it's like you need to burn in the flame so that you can emerge you know more self-actualized more self-connected more connected to to god and to your you know kind of guiding principles sure transformed basically Mm -hmm. and i feel like the interesting thing is the root Whereas the the heroin addict or the alcoholic who is suffering, their goal isn't purity. Their goal is the opposite. So I think there's some sort of connection to the root of the experience that really changes the experience and allows for a transformative experience. I just think it's interesting. But I think they're more similar than meets the eye because I, I do believe that maybe not all, but, you know, most addicts or a large percentage of addicts 
are on, you know, they're, they're on their own spiritual journey. They're doing it in a wrongheaded way. Right. But they're seeking answers and solutions to their problems um, through an experience of substance, right? And, and, and so, they're really not that different. Like that seeker mentality, the person who's seeking out the heroin or, or whatever it is um, to find solace is not dissimilar from the athlete who's, you know, going out and, and welcoming suffering into, into his or her life, you know, to find those answers as well. Totally. And what about the compulsivity aspect that you experience? Like that seems like the most similar piece like, yeah, because you're like willing to put yourself over the edge. And obviously you competed in triathlons. Then you discovered these Ironman competitions and then you discovered these Ultraman competitions, which is like pushing it, pushing you to the absolute limit. And, and how like because I'm sure you've you've been doing this for years and years and years. Like when is there a line you cross when it's not good for you? Yeah, there's 100% a line that you can cross where it's not good for you. And you can have an addictive relationship with these endeavors just like you can with anything else. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly, uh, you know, I certainly plead guilty to being in that space at, at, at times in my life. I had self-awareness around it. And I've since, you know, calibrated my life so that it's much more imbalanced than it, than it was at that time. But, um, but there is something about... Uh, you know, that drive and that will that you're willing to just go completely all in. It's like when the, when the heroin addict runs out of their stash, like that, that's going to be the most, you know, diligent motherfucker you're ever going to meet. Like that dude is going to find what he needs to get. Right. And similarly, you know, when I was chasing this goal, like I literally cleared everything else out of my life so that I could focus on it. Now I had a background as a swimmer, like I knew how to train, I knew how to organize my life to kind of, um, you know, create a situation where I could maximize my potential in this quest. But um, it can easily get out of balance where the other important things in your life are not being attended to. Like, I have kids, I've got a wife, you know, I'm trying to feed them like I was balancing and all these other things at the same time. And I was, I had enough sobriety to make sure that those things were in check. And the way that I look at it now is that um, I used to beat myself up over not living like a balanced, you know, quote unquote life. But I now give myself permission to you know, just be who I am, which is somebody who really likes to give themselves over to a certain thing. And I think that that's okay, as long as that pendulum swings backward in due time to make sure that you're attending to the other things that are important in your life. Totally. And I think that's a beautiful thing to give yourself the ability to be yourself. Like, that's an awesome thing. Mm. And I always, I always did whatever I had to do to get drugs. And now I do whatever I have to do to make this show, to stay sober, to, to be, you know, a good member of my family, to make sure like trying to put my family first. But I, and I know there's a lot of spots in that book where you were like, if I have to admit it, I'm not putting my family first. You know what I mean? And like, and did you find that when you would do an event, then you'd come home and all of a sudden you'd double down on family to, to feel better 
uh, about it and to make them feel better? And then would you split again? Because I know in the beginning of these Iron Man things, I know you had them at one, but then you didn't have them at a few. Was that really difficult mm-hmm. to balance? Yeah, it is difficult to balance. I mean, I would come back from some insane, you know, long run or ride or something like that and walk in the door. And my wife, you know, she doesn't, she, she didn't know what I was doing. She was just like, oh, he left earlier and now he's back. She has no you know, concept of, oh, I just ran 40 miles or whatever. And she would just hand me a baby and say, your turn. And she's like, I'm, I'm going to go do my thing now. And, you know, I had to, and I was like, great, let's, that's the way to do this. You know? So when I'm home, I'm present with the kids, when I'm doing the other thing, I'm a hundred percent in on that. I'm not, you know, the, the work is not like cycling some kind of, you know, uh, melodrama in my head about why am I not home? Like, just try to be present wherever you are and do the best, you know, with what you, you have in front of you to do. And then when you're home, be a hundred percent home. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't hard. And some of the races I went and did, you know, without my family, but I also had them there for some of the more, you know, meaningful experiences that I've had to try to make it, you know, a really, a, a kind of, family affair are your kids into the fitness now the same sort of endurance stuff are they wanting to run and bike and swim or no not at all what are they, no interest what are they into what are they doing no interest. well the two our two boys are now 26 and 24 they're musicians everybody's an artist okay so they're they're musicians they're going into the studio next week to record their first album um that's awesome and my 17 year old daughter is a visual artist she goes to an art high school and my 13-year-old, she's dabbled in a bunch of different things, but she's not fully in on anything right now. But she has zero interest in anything that involves being uncomfortable. <laughs> right. I can relate. Yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. But I also think that your, your level of it made it an art. You know, your obsessiveness made your endurance athlete, athletics an art. You, you, you took it to the level of an art form, which is really, really, really cool. The crazy thing, though, the craziest of craziest is this whole, the epic five journey. Like, that's very hard. It was, I couldn't even believe, like, you describe having a friend who is a, a handicapped one-arm uh, endurance athlete and he made the he mentioned that he wanted to do it and you like roll your eyes did you know right away when he said i want to do this and he invented it right he invented the yeah. whole thing yeah so there's a guy called jason lester he's a very inspirational athlete he lacks the functionality of his right arm okay. which was uh damaged in a car accident when he was very young it's not amputated but it doesn't work it like hangs limp mm. and yet he goes out and does all of these incredible endurance challenges, sets records, won an SB, um, incredible human being. And he's somebody that I had um, trained with leading up to the 2009 Ultraman. We became friends, we competed together. And so he had this crack, you know, this crack brained idea of doing five Ironmans on five Hawaiian Islands in five days. And when he first told me about it, no, I had no, I was like not interested. He wasn't asking me to do it at that time. He just wanted to know what I thought about the idea. And I thought it was insane, but that I would support him. You know, I would help, you know, do whatever he needed to, to support him in doing it. It wasn't until later that he, that he asked me to join him. And I had to really think about that long and hard because I appreciated the level of commitment it would take to do that. Um, and at that time, honestly, like, uh, you know, I felt like I had already proved to myself everything I needed to prove to myself about my capabilities and all those existential questions that I'd been grappling with. I felt like I kind of had a grip on what the answers were. So it wasn't like I felt 
um, compelled to, you know, continue to beat myself up and, and just, you know, relentlessly train and race for the rest of my life. Like I'm not that guy. And you do see a lot of that. There's a lot of people, they get into this endurance world and then they, it's just go, 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 go. And they never stop. And that I think can be an addictive relationship because ultimately they're running away from their lives. They're not running towards it. And I felt like I'd done a lot of work so that I could, um, you know, embrace my life in a new way. And I wasn't sure how much remain to be mined in the insurance world. Like, you know, I got what I wa- I needed to get out of it. Um, but this was just too appealing. Like I had to say yes to it. And it made me realize that even though I felt like, even though I had exceeded every expectation that I had ever set for myself as an athlete, um, once again, I realized that I could raise the ceiling on that potential um, by doing this thing that that just scared the shit out of me. Dude, honestly. it's like the scariest thing ever. And the Dopey Nation needs to understand it's five marathons in five days was the plan. Plus, how many how many miles of biking? Uh, well, Two hundred and fifty miles of biking in five days. Was that what it was? So, so it's basically doing an Ironman distance triathlon a day on each of the five islands over five days. And for those of you who are listening who don't know what an Ironman is. It's a 2.4-mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike followed by a marathon. So doing that every day, five days in a row, and in between getting on a plane and flying to a different island and getting set up in a hotel and bring, schlepping all your gear and all of that. It was really the, the, the logistics of the whole thing because we, we had some people who were helping us out, but you know, a lot of it fell to us to just figure out how to get it done. And you know, I credit Jason... And this woman, Rebecca Morgan, who, who really helped us out with that. But, um, but that was the hard part because then we were dealing with all kinds of sleep deprivation, going, you know, trying to go out and do an Ironman on two or three hours of sleep um, in ridiculous heat and wind and all the other kind of things that, that the islands throw at you um, made it like this extraordinary and very difficult adventure. It wasn't a race. You know, the idea was just to do it. It didn't matter how fast that we did it, but the slower you out, you are out on the course, then you jeopardize, you know, catching that last plane to the next island. And of course it's eating into your sleep hours. So it was this really kind of wild experience. Well, the level, the level of intensity to me of insanity to, to, to go for that. I mean, just the, I mean, you described one day, like you, you did the swimming and the biking and now it's like, Oh, we just have to run a marathon before bed. And it's like, it just, it blows me away. But then I also thought about all of the adulation you had received through your kind of forties, like getting celebrated in all these magazines, being called one of the world's fittest men. Like, does that fuck with your head at all? And like, when you're doing something like the Epic five, you're like, you want to like, stop you know it gets crazy and you're like but i'm one of the world's fittest men like does that play a part yeah it's definitely a mind fuck i mean i suffer from imposter syndrome in a big way so first of all when i hear that stuff or even to this day when you say it out loud it just it like it never feels like it fits or that i can like own that like i always try to keep a healthy arm's length distance from any of that kind of, uh, you know, fawning media coverage. Um, but yeah, it also, but it also creates a little bit of accountability. Like I can't quit. Like I'll, you know, like if people are saying these things, like I have to live up to that. So it creates an external pressure, I think that, um, has pluses and minuses. Yes. It holds me accountable, but, 
Um, you know, the negative aspect of it is, is that, uh, you know, is it even true? Like, I'm, I'm certainly not one of the 25 fittest men in the world. I never have been. Like, it was sort of a media puff piece. It's great when you're trying to sell a book. Like, people love that stuff. But it's not really rooted in, 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 any, in any objective reality. Totally. But, and I can imagine somebody like you who has such a, a strong spiritual practice and a connection to the universe and to your body, ideas like that, are totally counterintuitive to humility. Like I'm sure it sets up this weird dynamic because also you're answering questions. Like I like to put myself down and call myself one of the world's most unfittest men, but that's just for my fun. You know, I mean, I'm sure that like, and that's a different kind of ego. Like that's a, there's a, that's a different type of unhealthy ego that is like the sort of, uh, you know, mirror effect of what I'm, I I'm talking about. It's fun. Um, it's fun and interesting. The idea of, of that and like of, of needing to be the worst. I'm the worst this, I'm the worst that, or I'm the best this, I'm the best that. It is very similar. What about just in terms of humility around this thing? Like, was that something you had to talk to your sponsor about? Was that something you shared about in meetings or did you keep it to yourself? Um, I shared about it, but I was circumspect about who I shared it with. Um, and I got uh, a diversity of reactions, you know, the, the sort of grounded, you know, the grounded response from the old timers is like, this is just an, this is just an exercise in pure alcoholism. You know what I mean? Like you're looking, you're so uncomfortable in your skin that you're going to go out and do this crazy thing. That's just a, a massive distraction from your life. And I had to calibrate that against this knowingness that I, that I had inside of me that was telling me that this was the, the path forward. And, you know, so that's, it's difficult to parse out like, um, the truth because as an alcoholic, like I do run my decisions by my peers and the people that I trust in the program. Um, but I also, as I become increasingly sober and much more, um, trusting of my intuition. And sometimes those two things are intention. And that would have been an example of, of those two things coming into conflict with each other. And so I had to make a decision of what was best for myself. And I would say, historically, I generally, you know, take the advice of, of the people that I trust in the meetings. But this was a case where there wasn't a lot of support you know, from my sober peers because it because it, it and and I don't I don't have any you know I don't cast aspersions on them because it was a crazy thing you know who in their right mind would you know invest this much time and energy in in doing something like this but that's also what makes it like a mythical journey like it's a once in a lifetime journey what you did uh, and and what your journey has been, it's like a, it's in a way, it's like the hero's journey kind of thing. You, and you had the opportunity to do it. And I'm not trying to blow you up when I say that, but it's a, that's why the book is so riveting, and that's why your story is so cool because you got to do this thing that not everybody can do. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was it was it was an amazing thing, and it and it really did. You know, it really did. Um, uh, you know, provide me with a perspective on my life that I would not have been able to connect with otherwise. And I'm super grateful to Jason for enlisting me in it and, and for the fact that I participated in it. And the best part of it for me is that the race before the last one on Maui, where you're like ready to die. You're like, fuck this. I've got the saddle sores. I can't go on misery. 
and um, and you're like ready to be done with it, and you have that kind of reborn spiritual awakening, seeing yourself, seeing the two of you and what you're actually doing, and then you ran the next marathon and you realize that there is no point to doing any of it if you can't enjoy it. Cause what's the point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. And also just the fact that, that I think we all have a deeper gear, you know, and when we're forced to kind of meet our maker and, and, you know, butt up against the, you know, the ceiling of what we believe our potential to be, uh, that there's always more to be mined. Like that's the big lesson that I take away from that. Um, and you know, the idea that you, when you think you're completely done and you actually have a lot more in the tank and you don't have to be a runner or, you know, give a shit about sports or any of that to, you know, contemplate that and how it applies in your own life. Right. And you don't have to be one of the fittest men in the world to find your next gear for whatever you of want course. to do. And like, but of course, and that's the, the, the greatness of the story, which leads us to the end of our story. And the end of our story is something that I've been trying to do for a long, long time, which is the, are you ready, Ritual? I'm ready. The dopey fitness challenge. Okay, Uh-oh. we have a lot of unfit people in the doposphere, and I am one of them. And I have like a dream of being in shape and being fit. And like, and and again, Dopey Nation. Me and Rich had to postpone finishing the interview because of technical problems. Back when we spoke last, I was probably twenty percent fitter than I am today. I had a sleepover with my kids' friends this weekend. It was make your own Sunday, Friday night, Saturday night, last night. I'm like I'm falling apart here physically, nutritionally. What can you? Uh, what's the first step to somebody who is not near fitness or near nutritional soundness? What do we do? What should we start with, Rich? Yeah. I love, I love that question. And I think it really, um, the answer to that question can be found in the same principles that we apply to get sober and stay sober. It's really all about like, what is the next best right thing to do? Mm. Like if you just face planted in a hot fudge Sunday, it's like, okay. Or you just, it's the same thing as if you just had a relapse, right? Like, what do you do now? Do you just like go out and booze it up and go on a bender? No, you call your sponsor and you go to a meeting, right? If you face plan into Sunday, all right, well, the next time you put something down your pie hole, maybe it should be nutritious. Like just recalibrate immediately, get back on the horse and try to make a better decision. It's about consistency and those little incremental things that add up over time. And, you know, one of my pet peeves Um, or not really pet peeves, but observations about the recovery community is that there is a little bit of, of false pride in, in kind of indulging in the unhealthiness of it all. Right. And the reason we're in the rooms and, you know, struggling in this community to support each other in sobriety is so that we can be better human beings, that we can feel better and live better. But, the health component of that, you know, is not part of what goes on in the rooms, but it really should be a part of everybody's lives. Like, look how hard you work to get sober and to stay sober. Shouldn't you apply those tools that you've learned with respect to, with respect to substance to the foods that you're eating, to the people that you're hanging out with, to your relationship with your body? How can you engage yourself physically that will enhance 
how you feel, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Like there's work to be done for all of us in that regard. So, um, you know, I'm always encouraging people to just start. I think people, you know, perhaps addicts specifically, we get all in our heads about what this means or what it looks like or where it's going to lead us. Just fucking go outside and go for a walk. You know, I guarantee you, you'll feel better. And then the next day, maybe throw 10 seconds of jogging into that walk and then just build from there. Like we are creatures of momentum. Mm. It's easy to keep going to meetings when you're going to meetings all the time. You stop going to meetings, then suddenly, you know, uh, opening that door to the meeting hall feels like a, you know, a, a 10 ton truck. So it's all about like trying to create healthy momentum in various areas of your life, whether it's with food or, or, or with movement and building on that. And, you know, my experience is that when you do that and you prioritize that, that your life gets better, you feel better, your, your interactions with other people are better, you feel better about yourself so that things ultimately, you know, downstream in your life start to go better. There's no end to the benefit of all of these things. And I just think it's, you know, important for people to understand that just because you're sober doesn't mean that you're not using food to medicate your emotions or using it addictively or, you know, there's, we all have these blind spots, you know, we're squeezing this water balloon and stuff's popping up all over the place. So try to think more broadly and globally and comprehensively about how your, your, your addict being or your addictive nature um, creeps into all these other areas of your life. You know, they say the road gets narrower. Well, it's, I'm going to make it narrower for you right now. And, and leave people, you know, with, with you know, the assignment of, of being more intentional about your nutrition and your physical selves. And it will only enhance your recovery program. Wow, I think that's beautiful. Uh, we also have a great contingency of people who are like, don't want to go to meetings and they're scared of God and they're scared of 12-step and they're scared of that. And somebody who is a big dopey fan who's on like a, a heroin replacement therapy, Suboxone, and she still smokes weed, but she's not on heroin, uh, wrote an email to us saying that we were at the vanguard of the alt-recovery movement, which is something that I love the sound of. It made me feel very good about mm-hmm. myself. But uh, the, the idea of the alt-recovery movement, we decided, was that there are an infinite number of ways into addiction, and there are an infinite number of ways out of addiction, and it's just kind of making a move and I always imagine that fitness could be a path for somebody who wasn't like who was scared of 12 step they could find some sort of commitment to themselves through fitness could you see that being like a, a great tool in their recovery yeah I think fitness is a tool in recovery but I would be cautious to advise anybody that fitness is the solution to your addiction problem right. Um, And I'll say also, I have no opinion on how people get sober. I think however, you know, whatever works for you, whatever you need to do, if you can get over that hump and achieve sobriety and maintain it, like more power to you. My only experience is in the rooms and working the 12 steps. So I can only, you know, and I, I, I don't. As we learn in those rooms, like, I'm not here to give anybody advice. I'm here to share my experience. That's my experience. If you find another way to get sober, then that's fantastic, and I have no opinion on that. But I do think it's important to understand 
you know, and people get confused when they read my story or, or hear about me that like running is what cured my alcoholism. And that's just not the truth. The truth is, you know, I have been on a spiritual path for a long time and through a process of slow variety have been able to cobble together some time. Running plays a part in that fitness, nutrition, all of those healthy habits are certainly important tools in my arsenal. But predominantly, I, I, I um, think about sobriety as as a um, as a spiritual path, whatever that looks like for you. Absolutely, I really, really cannot thank you enough for giving me so much time and uh, and love, and I really appreciate it, Rich. Yeah, thanks, man. This was super fun. I loved right. it. All right, cool, cool. man. I appreciate it. At the end of the show, we always say, we say, stay strong, dopey nation. And Chris, who was my partner who died, always would say toodles. So we say fucking toodles for Chris. You want to take us out with a little stay strong, dopey nation? Stay strong, dopey nation. And what's the other part? And toodles, toodles. for Chris. Yes. Toodles for Chris. Awesome. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had and my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had these suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had 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 and these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had